Take your Bibles, please, and turn to Jonah, Jonah chapter 3 this morning. We took a little bit of a break from Jonah, and now we are going to understand the lessons that God has for him as he finally pursues that which God has called him to do. I want to remind you of what we have already learned in Jonah and how we can now apply these things to our lives. Lesson number one is that God's word is clear in telling us what he wants us to do. That's a good lesson to learn because God has given to us his truth. All scripture is given to us by inspiration of God and is profitable. Doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness that the child of God may be mature, truly furnished unto all good works. God's word is clear in what he tells us to do. Lesson number two, when we run from God, God will get our attention. When we try to run from God, God will get our attention. The scripture tells us that whom the Lord loves, he disciplines And God does what he can do to get our attention. I was talking with somebody just this past week. And they could not understand why things were not going as they wanted them to go, why they were not being blessed in their lives. Now, it's been a long time since they've been in fellowship with God's people. And when you take yourselves away from God, when we take ourselves away from God, it's no wonder that we don't see God's blessing in our lives lives lesson number three when we run from god others will be affected you don't run from god by yourself i remind you of jonah how the sailors were affected had they not tossed jonah into the sea they too may well have drowned and we do not sin in a vacuum when we run from god and we are not pursuing what god's clear message is for our lives Other people are going to be affected. And when we discover that, we go back to number one, God's word does not change. (laughs) God is consistent. God's word is God's word. And it doesn't matter what happens in culture. It doesn't matter what happens in society. It doesn't matter what happens in our circumstances. God's word does not change. Thought I might get an amen on all that. We are here this morning studying God's word, and it does not change in our lives. And let me remind you that following God's word is not easy. I want to go back to this map again. I want to remind you where Jonah was when he began this, down here in Israel, someplace, and God told Jonah to go up to Nineveh. Jonah went the other direction and went down to Joppa and fled to Tarshish, which is on the other side of the map. God sent a big fish to get Jonah's attention, and Jonah was deposited on dry land. Now, I wanted you to look for the dry land on this map. Do you see it there? Do you see it there? There it is. <laughs> Now, I want you to see how far that dry land is from Nineveh. It's at least 200, perhaps 300 miles. 
So Jonah still has a 10 to 15 day trip in front of him. Because as we move into chapter 3, do you have it in your Bibles? It says, the word of the Lord came again to Jonah. It says, arise, go to Nineveh. Go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it in the message that I will tell you. So Jonah now goes to Nineveh, and he is willing to pursue what God has told him to do. Jonah arose and went. Now, as we look at Nineveh, we are reminded that Nineveh is a great city. God calls it a great city here in Jonah chapter 3. And it is a great city because it's some three days journey around. And we get that in in Jonah chapter 3. Verse 4, and Jonah began to go, I'm sorry, verse 3. So Jonah went and arose to went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceeding great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. This is a huge place, perhaps 60 miles in circumference. At the end of Jonah, in Jonah chapter 4, we discover that there is a great population there. There's some 120,000 children, perhaps 600,000 people in Nineveh. Nineveh is the largest city in the ancient world at this time. Walls around Nineveh are some 100 feet tall. I want you to picture that. That's 10 stories. The walls of Nineveh are wide enough for three chariots to be driven side by side. But I also want you to know something, that Nineveh is a city of great wickedness. Jonah chapter 1 told us that. And now Jonah's assignment is to go and cry against Nineveh. But there's something else I want you to understand. There are some translations that translate this. Nineveh is a great city to God. Let that sink down a little bit, will you please? This great city of great wickedness is a great city to God. And God cares enough about this city to send his servant Jonah to cry out against them and let them discover their sin. Is there any people group that God does not love? Is there anyone in our society that God does not love? Do we believe that God so loved the world? All people groups, all classes within our society, that he gave his only begotten son. Do we believe that? That whosoever believeth in him, his son, should not perish but have everlasting life. I want you to understand that in our culture, in our society, 
It is a great culture. It is a society that God cares about. And if God cares about it, you and I ought to care about it too. I'm afraid that so many times in our lives, we classify people according to the way we think they ought to be looked at in relationship to their sin. And yet God classifies people in the way that they ought to be looked at in relationship to his son. Did you catch that? We look at people in relationship to their sin. God looks at them in relationship to his son. Do you remember what Jesus said when the little children were bothering them? Suffer the little children to come unto me and forbid them not, for such is the kingdom of heaven. Do you remember what Jesus said when the woman was taken in adultery? You who, have the, who, who is without sin cast the first stone. <laughs> Peter tells us, God is not slack concerning his promises as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us. We're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come. Do we believe that? Or are those classes of citizens that we would consider unworthy pushed aside in our mind? Remember the parable of the sheep that Jesus told? A shepherd has a hundred sheep. He brings them into the fold at night and he's counting them. I, un, I often wonder how he was able to stay awake during that time, don't you? Say, if you want to fall asleep, count sheep. So he's counting them. One, two, 97, 98. 99. He has a hundred. One is missing. And what does he do? He goes out and he looks for him. Why? Because he cares about that one sheep. How hard are you and I looking for those people that God cares about because they're not in the fold anymore? Nineveh was a great city a great city to God and that's why God sent Jonah I want you to notice the message that Jonah was going to preach verse 4 Jonah began to cry into the city going a day's journey and he called out yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown I'll bet he enjoyed that message don't you I mean Jonah didn't like the Ninevites very much God's going to get you. 40 days, you're gone. And Jonah is crying out about this message, and he is letting the people know in Nineveh that they are immediately in danger, in peril, and that God is going to judge them. If you're ever playing Bible trivia, and someone asks you a question that demands an answer that is a number, guess 40. 
40 is an interesting number in the scripture. It's a number that many times deals with judgment or testing. And many scholars understand that it's a number that talks about probation or, or trial. You remember how many times, it, how many days it rained when Noah and his family were in the ark? 40 days and 40 nights. Do you remember how many years Noah's Noah? Do you remember how many years Moses spent on the backside of the wilderness? Very good. Do you remember how many days and nights Moses spent up on Mount Sinai when he was talking to God? Do you remember how many days Moses interceded for God's people when they rebelled against God? You're getting the idea. Some of you think I'm going to throw in a trick one here. I'm not. All right. Do you remember what the maximum amount of lashes was according to the Israelite law? Forty. Do you remember how many days it took for the spies to spy out Canaan? Do you remember how many years Israel wandered in the wilderness? Before Samson's deliverance of Israel, how many years did Israel serve the Philistines? Goliath taunted the armies of Israel for how many days? Are you going to sleep yet? You getting the idea? How many days and nights was Jesus tempted in the wilderness? How many days were there between the resurrection of Christ and the ascension of Christ? Get any idea? Jonah now calls out against Nineveh 40 days. 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Nineveh, that great city would be destroyed. Now, the text does not tell us how that was going to happen. The text does not tell us who God would use to make that happen. The text does not even say exactly why that was going to happen other than Nineveh was an evil city. And yet we read in the text in 40 days, this great city is going to be overthrown. That's not much time, folks. It was a message of destruction. It was a message of condemnation. It was a message that God used to get people's attention. On July 8th, 1741... A message was preached by a preacher by the name of Jonathan Edwards. The title of the message was Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. 
And it was this message that God used to get his people attention as the great revival started to sweep through the land. How many of you have ever read that sermon? A few of you have. Let me give you the 10 salient points of that sermon. Number one, God may cast wicked men into hell at any given moment. Number two, the wicked deserve to be cast into hell. Divine justice does not prevent God from destroying the wicked at any moment. Number three, the wicked at this moment suffer under God's condemnation to hell. Number four, the wicked on earth at this very moment suffer a sample of the torments of hell. The wicked must not think simply because they are not physically in hell that God in whose hands the wicked now reside is not at this very moment angry with them. Number five. At any moment, God shall permit him, that is Satan, who stands ready to fall upon the wicked and seize them as his very own. Six, if it were not for God's restraints, there are in the souls of wicked men hellish principles reigning which presently would kindle and flame out into hellfire. Number seven, simply because there are not visible means of death before them at any moment. The wicked should not feel secure. Eight, simply because it is natural to care for oneself or to think that others may care for them, men should not think themselves safe from God's wrath. Number nine, all that wicked men may do to save themselves from hell's pains shall afford them nothing if they continue to reject Christ. And lastly, God has never promised to save us from hell except for those contained in Christ through the covenant of grace. If just a few of those principles would touch our hearts, it would change our message to the unsaved. Jonah's message is very simple. In 40 days, Nineveh's going to suffer God's wrath. And the message is the same today. At some point, Jesus is coming back. And those who have received him as personal Savior are going to be caught up to meet the Lord in the air, so shall we ever be with the Lord. Amen? But the wicked will be under God's condemnation. We love the first part. We forget about the second part. And the truth is, today may be the day that Jesus comes back. And you are well aware that those who have rejected Christ as personal Savior may be seemingly good people. For God says that even our righteous deeds are like filthy rags before a holy God. In 40 days, Nineveh will be
but I want you to notice verse 5. Will you please look at your text? Underline this in your Bibles. Highlight it. And the people of Nineveh believed God. Amen, glory! The people of Nineveh believed God. The text does not say the people of Nineveh believed Jonah. He's insignificant. He really is. Because this is a message from a holy God. And believing Jonah's message wouldn't have done them any good. And the message was, in 40 days, God is going to overthrow the city. And the people of Nineveh believed God. Woo! That ought to give you goosebumps. When people believe God, things change. Are you still in verse 5? They called for a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. They called for a fast. A time of humbling themselves before an almighty God, recognizing who he is and giving him the proper authority and place in their lives. That's what a fast does. Now, sometimes we believers fast. And we usually associate it with giving up a meal so that we can concentrate on God. And what that means is, we deny something important in our lives so that we can spend our times recognizing the authority of a sovereign God in our lives. That's not a bad thing. But that's what these people did. They believed God and all of a sudden they proclaimed a fast because God is God and we need to spend time recognizing his authority in our lives. Oh, that those of us who believe God would spend time recognizing his authority in our lives. You know how that would change us? And they put on sackcloth, a symbol of grief, a symbol of repentance, a symbol that recognized they were nothing before a holy God. Many times in scriptures, it talks about sackcloth and ashes. And people would put on these coarse, coarse garments that would rub their skin and make them uncomfortable because they knew that before a holy God, they had no standing at all. And in penance, they threw themselves down to worship God. None of us here today have standing before God except through Jesus Christ. On our own, we have no standing before God. Their sin grieved them. Their sin caused them to recognize how far away from God they really were. And they put on sackcloth. Paul Markle. In his commentary opening up, Jonah says this. 
Believing God goes deeper than just believing what they had been told. It also means that they believed in God. They were not merely heeding his warning, but were casting themselves upon him. The declaration of a fast and the wearing of sackcloth was an outward expression of reflection on a genuine and heartfelt turning away from sin. But the fact that they believed in God indicates that the turning away was matched by a turning to at some time. In a single moment, they turned their backs on their old way of life and turned their faces in hope to the God of mercy. Now may I just stop right here and remind you that the past of the Assyrians, the Ninevites, had not changed. All of those wicked, evil things that they had done to other nations still happen. But what had changed going forward was an understanding that there was a holy God to whom they are now accountable. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a what? And what happens? Old things are passing away. Behold, all things are becoming new. New creatures in Christ. Amen? A lot of times you and I would like to see instantaneous spirituality take place. Sometimes God does that. But most often, it's progressive sanctification that God uses in our lives to challenge us and change us and conform us to the character of Christ. The past is the past. You can't change it. But aren't you glad that God is the God of now and forever? Amen? And as we believe in God, things change in our lives. But not only did this happen to the people, verse 6 says, the word reached the king of Nineveh. Wow, even the swamp gets affected. The ruling hierarchy now understands that something has taken place. And what does the king do? He arose from his throne, he removed his robe, he covered himself with sackcloth, sat in ashes, and issued a proclamation and published it throughout Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Why? Who knows? God may turn and relent And turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. The king removed his robe. Humility. Made a proclamation. Called out mightily to God. Turned from wickedness and violence. Why? Because maybe God will turn from destroying us as a people. God may turn and relent. Can you think of any other times that God 
turned and relented? You remember he was going to destroy his people at Mount Sinai because of the golden calf. calf. Moses prayed. And the scripture says that God turned and relented. Remember in Genesis chapter 6? God relented that he'd even made man because the wickedness was so great. And yet he saved Noah and his family with a flood. God was sorry he made Saul king. Deuteronomy says, I put before you a blessing and a curse. A blessing if you'll do this, a curse if you don't. And it's all about our response to a holy God. Maybe God will relent and turn his fierce anger away. You know, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a mighty God. Hebrews tells us that. And the king realized it. Maybe God will relent. Enter God. <laughs> Verse 10. When God saw what they did, they turned from their evil way. God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did them not. Enter God. I love that, don't you? The people believed God. And now at the end of chapter 3, we find enter God. When God saw, what did he see? He saw that they had turned from their evil way. He said he wouldn't do what he said he was going to do. Because it had had a positive effect on the people. Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. And yet God turned and destroyed the people of Nineveh and the Assyrian nation. Glory! You talk about a citywide revival. You talk about the days where the evangelists come in and turn the world upside down. You talk about a great recognition of who God is and what he can do in people's lives. You talk about a woohoo moment that follows the people's belief in God. Now, I'm standing here looking at you folks, and I don't see many of you all excited about that. I mean, look at the text. 600,000 people are saved. 
God who said he was going to destroy the city in 40 days now comes in and says, I'm not going to do it. The king, the king is even affected. Whoa. Wow. Right on God. Yeah. I mean, come on, folks. What would happen in Battle Creek? And we're not 600,000. If God got a hold of the city and turned a city manager and a city council, then all of the residents toward himself. What would that do to our lives? Look at the first four words of chapter four. You see it? But it displeased Jonah. afraid that might happen to us well they're going to all these churches that aren't the best churches and they're not preaching the gospel what's the matter with them I had an interesting conversation with Brent Nessick a couple of weeks ago Brent is teaching in Saudi Arabia, part of the world that I have no concept of. And over there, ISIS is real. And perhaps you have read where Coptic Christians have given their lives for the cause of Christ. I don't know what you know about Coptic Christians. They don't believe like we believe, except Receiving Christ as personal Savior gets them to heaven. They could be called Catholic Christians in a lot of ways. ISIS captures them, threatens them with death, unless they will recant their faith in Christ. And all they have to do is say, I deny Christ and their lives are saved. Brent, because of our conversation, thank you. I have a whole lot greater respect for those that I may not agree with totally theologically when they take a stand for Christ at the price of their lives. But it displeased Jonah. I wonder when God does an incredible work, when we see repentance and redemption, when people are saved, lives are changed. 
why we don't get more excited about that. Now, I'm going to end on a downer today. I know that. Because I want us to think about the little things that displease us that take us away from the great work that God is trying to do. Little things in our lives that don't amount to a hill of beans. And I want to start by asking this question. What does it take to displease you? I'm going to use some illustrations. The illustrations that I'm going to use, I have permission to use. I want you to know that. Some weeks ago, somebody said to me, Pastor, are we ever going to hear the organ again? The following week, we had a great organ piece on this instrument right here. It was wonderful. So I went to that person, I said, hey, how'd you like the organ? They looked me straight in the eye and said, nice try. I said to them, do you want the organ or do you want a piece of furniture? You see, folks, God working in our lives, lifting us to him, focusing on his authority, and we're looking for a piece of furniture. But it displeased Jonah. Even when God is at work, are you displeased? You know how messy evangelism is? I mean, dealing with unsaved people. We get evangelism going and we got all kinds of students running around. Are being impacted with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet, how many times do we wrap our arms around them and encourage them and minister to them and help them, recognizing that they're still working on their relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ? Or do we see something that's not according to our liking and blame it on the kids? but it displeased Jonah. What do you focus on when God's at work? What do you focus on when God's at work? My father was a pastor for many years in Ohio. Growing a church in southern Ohio, which is an interesting challenge in itself had some folks that he was really trying to bring along and involve and and share they're working on fellowship growing as a family that's a good thing zoo picnic next week working on fellowship growing as a family it's a good thing plan an activity that was just the way these folks wanted it 
it went off and they didn't show up. My dad went to them and said, hey, what's the deal? They looked at him and said, well, it probably would have been crummy anyway. What do we focus on when God's at work? What do we focus on when we have a bell ringer? What do we focus on when there's a, a song that, that may not be as familiar to us? What, what do we focus on? I met with a, a man just a, a couple of weeks ago, and, and he was telling me that his favorite song was Be Thou My Vision. He's not here this morning. All right. You know? When God's at work. But it displeased Jonah. You ever miss God's work because you're displeased? How do you encourage or discourage others when God is at work? I told you I was going to end on a downer, and that was it. But here's what I want you to go home with. The people believed God, and God responded in a mighty way. And when we believe God, God will respond in great and mighty ways in our lives. Amen? And so let you and I today leave believing who God is and look for what he wants to do for his honor and his glory. That's the focus, folks. It's not what we think should be done. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's all about God. And the foundation of that is believing God is going to do something in our lives. This week, I challenge you, look for God to do something in your life and believe that he will.